Is it good? <laughs> I wouldn't say good. It's okay. It's, it's, it's an episode. We're having an episode. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, tablet editor at large, Leah Leibovitz. Hello to you. And live from Hollywood, Joshua Molina. Hubba hubba. <laughs> On today's episode, we are featuring an interview with Jamie Lynn Sigler, who played famously Meadow Soprano on the hit HBO show, The Sopranos. Am I saying that wrong? Everyone always makes fun of how I say it. Sopranos, Sopranos. Tomato, tomato. Is pronounced Sopranos. Perfect. It's the show's 25th anniversary, and she joins us to chat about her time playing Meta Soprano and a lot of stuff since then. It's a great conversation, and we are excited to have her on the show. Plus, we're sharing another story from our trip to Israel. Our producer, Ellie Blyer, takes us to his favorite hummus joint in Yafo and makes the case that one of their dishes could truly bring peace to the Middle East. It's a tall order, but it sounds delicious. That dish, best served cold. <laughs> <laughs> but first, we haven't really caught up the three of us in a while. It's been all special episodes all the time. So let's let's bring this to like a decidedly unspecial place with the three of us. I'd like to start with myself. I'd like to center myself in this conversation. Um, I'm reading a great book. I'm actually listening to it, so I'm technically not reading it. You listen to books books on tape. You listen to audiobooks. Uh, I love audiobooks. Huh. Um, I think it's amazing. It's fascinating to me. I never got that. I love it. So I, I've had my favorite audiobook narrator, Julia Whalen, on the show before. Mm -hmm. She actually just started her own audiobook company. It's called Audiobrary, and it's basically like a way for audiobook narrators to get royalties. It's like, the, turns out that part of the system is like messed up as well. The latest book I'm listening to is Joshua Cohen's new book, The Netanyahu's. And he reads it. And actually like David Duchovny is a voice in it. It's like a whole production. Does David Duchovny do funny Israeli accents? I haven't not, actually, I, I really don't see the point. To be perfectly honest, I'm like very early on in the book, but uh, very, very baby, into it. Where is the hummus? But the reason I'm bringing this up and bragging about reading a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, piece of literature is because I learned something and I wanted to share it with the group. Sometimes I learned that words are Yiddish and I had no idea they were Yiddish. This one, klutz. Sure. Of course. What did you think it was? <laughs> Just American. Norwegian? It sounds like the original French, but... No. Yeah, klutz. Klutz. Klutz, putz. From the people who brought you schmuck, schlemiel, schlemeisel, and schmegegi. Schmendrick. Comes but, a brand new word. But I do think it shows just like the way in which Jewish has seeped into American, right? Like these Yiddishisms, like everyone, you know schwitz and kvetch, you know those are Yiddish terms. But the fact that like klutz, of course it's Yiddish when you think about it, but why would I ever think about that? I don't know. It tells me where we are, where we've gotten to. We've arrived. Yeah, things are great for us. We really <laughs> <laughs> never better in this country. It's jo klutz washing. Josh and Melina, they're yes. going to get better because last week, producer Josh Cross, who lives for news such as this, texted me excitedly that Apple is now going to offer built-in transcripts of podcasts. So first of all, good luck to technology giant Apple trying to catch up with a transcript that could actually understand the speed at which we're speaking right now. <laughs> yeah. Second of all, Mr. AI bot transcript, on today's episode, we feature some hummus in the city of Haifa with some klotzes and only machers could understand the way we verbringen. Got, got, got that, AI? Transcripts will be good though. I was going to say back to the audiobook question I posed on Twitter recently. I'm, I'm on Goodreads and I like to list all the books that I've read and review them. 
And why else be on Goodreads, right? Of course. But I threw threw out the question, do you, if you listen to an audiobook, do you consider it a book that you've read on Goodreads? And somebody on Twitter put me right and said, not everybody can read books. That it would be ableist not to include listening to a book as it having been read. And hence, transcripts for podcasts is a beautiful thing. Huh. Let's go back to this question for a second. Joshua Molina, you consider listening to an audiobook as reading, having read the book. I do now. I think when I posted on Twitter, I did not. And I don't listen to, I have listened to an audiobook or two, but I don't do it often. But that, that person, I think, set me right on Twitter. Now I do. Wait, so you're you're trying to tell me that someone set you right on Twitter. We can't get let this get out because people are going to then continue to think that they should attack you on Twitter. In, oh, in other well, news, yes. that, Mashiach is on its way. Twitter <laughs> changed someone's opinion. Yes. Once every million tweets, I go, huh, I think you're right. But this actually is like an excellent organic segue into Joshua Molina. You and I saw each other this weekend. We did read aloud together. This yes, weekend. we did. We were two of the readers at the Museum of Jewish Heritage's day-long reading of Elie Wiesel's Night. Yeah, it was that was a pretty uh, special event. I was honored and pleased to be part of it. It was fun to see you. And we read in the same group, which was nice. Yes, we a, were in group A day-long three. journey into, into night. night. It as, was as it wild. <laughs> we we basically each got a portion that we were assigned to, and then they said, "Okay, you'll be you'll be up after Jackie Hoffman." Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> I was like, you know what? If there was ever a time to go after Jackie Hoffman. The least funny thing in the entire world is the ideal uh, material to be to be going with. I was about to say, did Jackie Hoffman get the funny bits in Night? No. Well, actually, I had thrown out there in the waiting room, and in which we waited for a really long time because they were behind, as these things often uh, are. <laughs> Turns out it's a long book. <laughs> I was suggesting that we all put money into a pot and whoever managed to get a laugh during their portion would win the pot. Stephanie got a big laugh. Do you remember where it was? You actually did. Because there are some lines in that are like pretty wry, right? Like we were... So, 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 Jews love not, rye. Not as in rye bread. No, no, no. Because yes, they didn't have rye, that yeah. at all oh, at I will night. Say, like, not so even a slice. It, the order actually was Carol Kane, Jackie Hoffman, Stephanie Butnick, which is, you know, the trifecta. I like, mm-hmm. as, as a headliner, I really do love right. them as opening acts. Um, <laughs> Carol Kane brought the house down. She had a terribly sad portion. She was, she read so beautifully. And like her part, there was like hangings. Oh my God, her part was horrible. Was very moving. Yeah. Regina Spector was in the group before us. The whole thing was wild. And, and was while it's not a competition, I do think uh, group three. Won the reading. Yes, we won night. We bonded backstage because we had to decide how we were pronouncing some of these like German words. Yes. And did you go all in? Did you do Sonderkommando? The big question was Blockeltester. Yes. So that's the person who's in charge of your barrack. I like like the way. Say it again. We went with Blockeltester. Great name for a band. <laughs> I kept saying blockle testy, and everyone was like, "Stop saying testy." That sounds <laughs> like, like I can't, I can't yeah. stop. And that's um, why you got the big laughs. Yes, exactly. Um, the yeah. blockle testicles. So <laughs> yes, but like, just yeah, people love that one. It's um, amazing. But it was beautiful. It was nice to see you in person. I met your daughter. Yes, my great. daughter, who very, very patiently spent the entire day with me at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. We got a forty dollar <laughs> coupon for locks. The uh, cafeteria or the restaurant, rather, at the museum. The, the restaurant there is amazing, Locks. I had a beautiful matzo ball soup. Big fan. And I had I got some babka to go. But it's a beautiful museum. And if you're uh, downtown in Manhattan, or if you're just in Manhattan altogether, go downtown and visit the Museum of Jewish Heritage. It's a credit to Elie Wiesel that we can now read night while eating Locks. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. We've come a long way, baby. Yeah, nothing bad has ever happened to the Jews since that <laughs> book was written. News. Of the Jews, oh yeah, N-O-T-J, news of the Jews. 
All right, time for some news of them Jews. This is some beautiful news. Jewish-Muslim duo to jointly run first licensed pot shop on Staten Island. This is the story for our times. This is a 2024 story, if I've ever heard one. The first licensed marijuana shop on Staten Island is going to be jointly run by a Jewish man and a Muslim man vowing, this is according to the New York Post, vowing to show that people of their faiths can get along and even prosper together. We want to show what happens when Jews and Muslims work together, said Shlomo Weinstock, who will be running the flowery with his partner, Mohammed Mo El Ghali. By the way, there's no fucking way that these were their original names. <laughs> They're like Steve Berg and like, yeah, and you like know, John go Smith. And they, had, they changed to, you know, Shlomo and Muhammad just for the publicity. And I, sure. think, I think we probably should do a, a reported segment from the flowery. Yeah, send me there. I will, I'll do a deep dive. I'll go undercover. <laughs> I just, I think this is beautiful. Is is this how we solve all the problems? Maybe. It's like Mad Libs, interfaith Mad Libs. A blank and a blank open a blank together in blank borough. Hey man, do you want to like blow something and go to war? Nah, bro. Is there a Jewish and or Muslim take on uh, smoking marijuana? I think Jews like pot, right? Don't religious Jews smoke marijuana? That is a very good question. And I would refer this to greater rabbinic authorities. Uh, My understanding is that- No such thing. (laughs) Tell me about it. Uh, My understanding is that this is among the things that are permissible. Uh, Of course, granted that they lead to greater spiritual awakening. I will say New York, of course, famously botched this licensing deal in in an unbelievable way, which is why every second storefront here is an unlicensed weed shop. So the very fact that these two got a license showed me that maybe, maybe there's hope for, you know, law and order. But again, I mean, think about what happens if this works. What if, what if it turns out that the entire way to solve all our problems is for everyone to be high all the freaking time? And look, I'll leave you with the last word from Mo. We both come from Abraham. We eat the same food. We have the same personalities. <laughs> and like, you know what? Truer words. Just light it up. We eat the same food. We eat much more of it when we're <laughs> stoned because we have crazy munchies. But hey, Hummus is very good for this. I will say that the one point in college in Israel in which I saw even my most militant friends be completely ready to any and all concessions is when the drug trade from Lebanon temporarily stopped because of some fighting or another. They're like, I can't get hash. Do whatever it takes to rectify this. Make it work. Give away whatever you need. Sign up whatever deal you need to sign up, man. Just come on. This is not good. So maybe that will solve the Middle East. Maybe this is the way. We need a good pun. The something state. I know. I was thinking about that too. Can we put that to our listeners? Give us a pun. We're too weird. We can't think of anything. The two. I don't know. I got nothing. The altered state solution. Oh, I like that. Mm. What? Oh, the two strain oh, solution from nice. producer Quinn Waller. Oh, that's very good. She's got I like it. it. She was. It was a little too quick. Um, just kidding. That's <laughs> the name. Like the name it. of her book. <laughs> Here's what I would like Shlomo and Muhammad. To address, like everything else in the world, I feel like weed has gotten so extreme. I haven't touched it in, I don't know, over a decade because it just became completely freaking weaponized. I mean, when we were kids, like you smoked some weed. It's like, hey, man, I'm feeling kind of great and silly. Right now, it's like, oh, I ate a quarter of an edible and all of a sudden, I'm completely incapacitated because it has three and a half pounds of THC. <laughs> Why? And it's all in these, like, you know, highly marketable, highly condensed portions. 
maybe they could bring us back to the before times. I couldn't agree more. As another old man, I will say the same thing. Right? Sure. Used to be you could enjoy it over a period of time. Now you have to take some sort of nano hit lest you lose your mind entirely. Right. Yeah. So you need we need like the Old Testament version of of marijuana. We do. Did I sound old enough there when I mm-hmm. when I said that phrase? I love that. You're reminding me now, actually, on a trip to Israel as a much younger man in search of buying a hookah, which I think uh, my sister and I did and convinced our parents we just liked them as objects of beauty. Uh, <laughs> smoke, we smoked uh, hash with uh, the, an Arab proprietor of uh, said shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a very common thing back in the homeland. Sure. And it's good quality, too, because it, it is hash central. That's right. And yet that, too. Yet another simple pleasure taken away from us. Gone. Well... Speaking of unlikely combinations, this next story comes to us from the New York Times. Azilla listing in Albuquerque got some attention because the house layout was called the Anne Frank. Um, <laughs> Come hide your family. Why would that be a selling point? There's a real estate development company that started naming their houses after like famous people. So there was the Harriet Tubman, which people did not find respectful in any way. And there was the Anne Frank model. And you're just like... There could have been a very, very sophisticated way to do this, but uh, oh, no, Mrs. Goldberg, instead. you want a spacious attic. What you want is our Anne Frank model. <laughs> very popular. There's the Audrey Hepburn. There's the Coco Chanel. That's the Nazi-designed uh, house. There's Amelia Earhart. Yeah, Margaret good luck Thacker, finding Frida it. Kahlo. I was about to Amelia Earhart. Once you go in, uh, who knows? But yes, I would like to read you something from the Abrazo Homes website, a page that no longer exists. This is about the Anne Frank home. The design could be customized into a three or four bedroom home. I'll leave that to your imagination how we do that. But the website reads, in her diary, Anne Frank discussed her view of the seasonally changing tree. In honor of her, we have designed our Anne plan to maximize the view. We feel it would be suitable for Anne herself. I think the person who came up with the words, the Anne plan was definitely smoking weed. But but why stop there? Uh, I'd like to suggest that for families with many children, we have the Ellie we sell. You could put seven of them in a bunk. God. The house comes with no kitchen because, you know, why bother? It's, oh my God, the jokes write themselves. Well, I say despite everything, I believe that landlords are good at heart. <laughs> We've lost Liel. There goes his other lung. My lung. <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> All right, that's that's I think that's enough for this week. Let's get to the rest of the show. <laughs> Today we are joined by the fabulous actor Jamie Lynn Sigler, whom you might remember from her role as Meadow on The Sopranos. She also co-hosts her own podcast called Not Today, Pal, with her Sopranos co-star and real-life BFF, Robert Eiler. Jamie talks to us about her experience living with MS, and she also talks about being on The Sopranos and tells us why she still hasn't watched the entire series. Jamie, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. For our listeners who have not yet listened to Not Today, Pal, will you tell us a little bit about what that is? So Not Today, Pal is a show about nothing that I host with my dear, dear friend, Robert Eiler, who played my brother on The Sopranos. So we have a really unique history and unique chemistry 
it primarily is him making me extremely uncomfortable with questions that I'm not <laughs> for. And we play a little bit of Sopranos trivia because the two of us have never watched the show in its entirety. And we probably know less about it than anyone else in the world. <laughs> we poke fun of that. We have memory lane where we're, they show us pictures and we have to guess from what year it was from and where it was. Like I said, we have such a unique history and we had a really unique and intense experience together as young people through a lot of our formative years. So we're bonded forever in that way. And, you know, we're also very much like siblings in our rapport. So we have a lot of fun with it. I'm intrigued also. I want to do a deeper dive into this whole haven't watched it. You know, it's really good. <laughs> you ought to watch it. People love it. As an older actor, I understand that I no longer want to look at myself. I don't even want to look at myself on this Zoom call. But <laughs> when I was younger, if I were 16, say, and on a massively great hit show when i was younger i was like oh i'm on tv let's watch why why did you avoid it for so long why have you still not watched it in its entirety i've watched some of it now but yes i will say the when the first season aired i was a senior in high school all my friends had grown up schlepping to every Y and community theater production of annie and gypsy and fiddler on the roof that i did all growing up and so when the show aired, for me to be able to sort of share this like big moment in my life was awesome. And they they would come over every Sunday night and we would watch it. But I would say we weren't really watching it. As, as a 17-year-old girl, even though I was on the show and appreciative and kind of got a feeling of what I was a part of, it was really hard for me to fully grasp. I was more concerned with high school parties than, you know, the quality of the show that I was on. And then over the years, I don't know, I think I, you know, I went through a lot personally during my time on that show. I was really self-critical. I was really insecure. And so I didn't want to watch it. I didn't want to be faced with like in my head of how undeserving I probably was to be on that show, how much better everyone was probably than me on that show. So it, it felt easier to kind of just ignore it. And then during COVID, when everybody was either watching it for the first time or re-watching it, my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, should we do it? Should we give it a try? And then as a 39-year-old woman, you know, a mom of two kids sitting down and watching it, I'm so happy that I waited that long. I only made it through four seasons, but A, I was able to kind of experience it as much as I could as an audience member because so much time had gone by, I forgot so much. And then also B, like, I was able to kind of appreciate what I did and be like, oh, I was... I was okay. I was like pretty good. And, you know, it, it was such a phenomenon. And we understood how people felt about it while feeling it. But, you know, when you're part of something, you really don't, you can't fully understand. And so watching it late, 15 years later, I was like, wow, I get it now. I get why people really loved it. And I was shocked at how funny it is. It is. It's very funny. And I'll say as an objective observer, you're excellent on the show. You're a precocious actor. What had been your screen experience up to that point? None. None. Amazing. So you, you learned on that job. That's amazing. I, I remember I showed up to the first day on the set and they had my stand in and I was freaked out because I was like, oh God, maybe I didn't get it. Am I still alive? Oh. Looks just like me practicing my scene. Like that's how green I was. Wow. Yeah. What a place to learn though. That's amazing. It's so interesting. I'm realizing right now, both of you are really identified with a beloved show. And you've yeah. both now made podcasts that are adjacent to the show, The West Wing Weekly. And then, of course, your show, which is not about The Sopranos necessarily, but is is part of the genre of like people we loved watching on TV now being themselves through podcasts. Mm -hmm. For you, Jamie, having the distance from the show and then finally watching it, 
I feel like that allowed you to like enter this genre in an appreciative way. Totally. I've embraced it more than I ever have. And, you know, it's cool, too, because I recently talked to Edie Falco and now we're almost like peers. And so it was a beautiful conversation we recently had of just like her perspective of me as being a young girl. And so just be able to like have these new rich relationships with people that you've known for a really long time and went through something really special with is is incredible. It must be amazing to have her as your like on-camera mom. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and now, I mean, if I think about it, because I'm 42, she was 34 when we shot the pilot. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh wow. baby, a Robert. Mind-blowing. Yeah, and Robert was just saying the other day that he is the same age as, as Jim Gandolfini was when we started the show, like right now today. So it's like crazy to think about. They were so young. Was he was he paternal? What a, what a loss. What a, a horribly brief life. What a wonderful actor and seemed like a fantastic person. Yeah. You would have loved him. Everyone loved him. He was, he was paternal, but in a very gym way, you know, he would never pry. He had boundaries for himself. And then for everyone else, he really treated Robert and I as equals. He never made us feel like just the kids. I think he really taught us in his own special way, how to conduct ourselves in the set, how to respect the work, how to respect ourselves and ask for respect And, you know, when he would know things were going on, he just had a really special way of asking, but not prying, but also like, like he knew I had MS before so many people, even in my personal life did. And I remember not him telling me, but a friend of his telling me that he had donated all of this money to MS research and never told me about it. You know, that's, if that could describe him, it does. When did you get a diagnosis? When did you find out? When I was 20 years old. So between the third and the fourth seasons, the beginning of filming the fourth season, yeah. I think any 20-year-old, it's like a very sobering and, and scary moment. But I think especially when you're on a huge TV show and you have this responsibility and, you know, I was just afraid of losing my job. It just felt easier to kind of keep it a secret. But, you know, he was one of the people that just having him know just made me feel better. And so when do you decide to, to open up about this and to share your journey and what you've been going through? So it took 15 years for me to do it. I think it was a lot of things. First, I wasn't really able to hide it anymore. It had manifested physically in a way that I really, I was out of excuses. I didn't want to lie anymore. I wasn't enjoying work anymore because it just became about getting through the day and not being found out as opposed to enjoying the work. And you know, when you harbor a secret for that long, I think that you start to develop these feelings of shame and guilt and you know, the people closest to me were really frustrated with that, you know, that they saw it chipping away at my self-worth because I had a disease that I didn't ask for. And I just didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what it would mean. It just felt like the scariest thing I could have ever done. And so I went to a hypnotist and I didn't go with the intention of having him hypnotize me into like being okay with everybody knowing. It was more like, I need to figure out how to live with this better because it's been 15 years and I still don't know how. And I don't know what he did in those two or three sessions that I had with him. But after that, I just felt like I need to see what my life is like without keeping this a secret. That was really what gave me the the push that I needed. And then at that time I was getting married. I had a two-year-old little boy. And I was like, you know what? My life is good, despite the fact that I live with this and I have my limitations. So I would love to share this news around a time that is really positive. 
because I didn't want it to be a sad story. I used to have fantasies like, oh, one day I'll talk about it when I'm healed. And then I think when, you know, reality started to set in of, I don't know if that'll ever happen, you know, and I had to sort of rearrange my future in my mind, just all of those things lined up in a way that just felt like I was ready. That's amazing. We're also in an interesting moment of sharing, right? You've posted a few things about Israel on your Instagram feed. This is a moment when I think a lot of public people are wondering what they should and shouldn't be posting and for Jewish celebrities to sort of decide when to take a stand and when to not. And so I'm wondering, you know, since October 7th, what has your inner calculus been about what to do and how to share? I feel terrible saying this, but it's been so hard to navigate for me because I'm not somebody that likes to engage. I don't want to argue with people. That's not what my page is about. That's not what I'm doing. But like, I am a proud Jewish woman. I've been to Israel multiple times. I went on birthright right when Sopranos finished because I wanted to make the cutoff. I was 26. I went in, I signed up as Jamie Sigler online. I went like everybody else. Wait, was that amazing to be on Birthright with Meadow Soprano? Like, were people freaking out? By the end of it, like, just address the elephant in the room. I really (laughs) assumed nobody knew who the fuck I was because they all treated me like a fellow, you know, tourist. But it was- That's nice to hear. It was. I wanted to join the IDF. I was like, I love it. (laughs) People. And it was truly one of the most life-changing experiences of my life. And like I said, I've been back since. And I, in fact, I just had shot this documentary where I went to India with an entirely Israeli crew last January that had become like family that are my, my people. And so. Can you tell us about that? I lived at an ashram for 11 days and they filmed every single minute I was there. Wow. And it was the most life-changing, terrifying, empowering, enlightening experience of my life. You know, I didn't realize prior to that how curated I had been with how people saw me, with how MS has affected me. You know, in all of the jobs I've had, I've never played anyone with MS. So it's always, how do we work around it? How do we cut away? Just take a few steps before you see or start limping. I had a walking double on the last show that I was on. And I felt very protected and grateful that they would do that for me. But I think it was still sort of feeding this thing about hiding it. If I was on a talk show, I'd already be sitting out there like no one saw. And now you're literally like watching me navigate an airport in Germany, like on my way to India and like walking through and using my cane and things like this. And it was from, from the first day we started to the, to the last day we started, which was only 12 days. I can't wait for people to see it. Cause it, I'm a completely different person. And it's, I hope that people will see me and that's the purpose through this, through their own lens and see themselves in me and experience what I got to experience. And the crew has gone to multiple places with different people from all walks of life, some other actors and celebrities and other ex army vets, things like that. And just all different journeys of healing, whether it be with plant medicine, whether it be at an ashram, whether it be in the Himalayas. And so it's incredible. And it was all Israeli crew. Wow. You, you're, you're a bold person. I admire you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that my husband, all the time is like, you're fucking crazy, Jamie. Like, what are you doing? I guess I take chances because I feel really limited in my day to day. And when I'm given something that scares me, I just got to do it because it makes me feel alive. It makes me feel like I can still do things. And I think that that's what keeps me going. It makes me still feel like I want to work. I want to accomplish things because, you know, when you deal with living in a body and not being able to do things that you once were, 
it's hard. It's really hard. So those types of challenges is what keeps me going. But back to your question about Israel, I was so shocked. I remember the first thing I posted was a picture of me from Jerusalem. And behind me was like sort of this graffiti that said, I love Jerusalem. And the attack that I received from just posting that photo and saying that I don't care about Palestinian children and I support genocide. I I had been so naive to the way the world felt about Jewish people. And it was shocking. And I, I remember just a feeling so heavy and devastated for weeks, not only for the victims and what was happening, it was all I could think about, read about, care about, and still to this day, to be honest, but just like me feeling like I was a part of that backlash and part of that hate. I'd never experienced anything like that. And I, I'm almost mad at myself that I was naive to the way people feel about us. I don't know how else to say it. Now I went through a lot of very similar emotions. It's weird. I had grown up going to Orthodox Yeshiva for eight years. I was like, how did I reach this age at this level of naivete and not realize that the stuff I was learning about really is out there and it hasn't gone away and it's just bubbling under the surface waiting to arise again and again. Yeah. You know, people all assume I'm Italian from New York. That's, you know, (laughs) even though I'm like, Sigler's definitely not an Italian name, but I'm so proud of who I am and where I'm from. And, the, and and Judaism was never really about religion for me. I mean, we were we went to temple and I was bat mitzvah. We were in a reformed temple. But to be quite honest, I never really went to temple after that. But to me, being Jewish is more about a people than a religion. And I couldn't be more proud to be associated with the Jewish people, truly. It's so great to chat with you. Jamie Lynn Sigler, thank you for being a guest on Unorthodox. Thank you so much. excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. All right, let's get to the mailbox. We haven't been there in a while. It's mainly bills, I think. <laughs> Liel, kick us off. Here's just a really lovely note. Dear Unorthodox team, because everything is awful, yeah, and bad, I've been doing what I often do in such times, that is, binging Unorthodox. Yay. It's a compliment, I promise. When nothing else can make me laugh, I know a good Holocaust pun will be there for me. 
There's not much to say that hasn't already been said or will be articulated by one of you far more eloquently than I could write in this email. So I send you these thought nuggets in the hopes that I can give back some of the smiles you've given me. I think each of you has their own little residence in my brain. I am so sorry for this. My huh. Liel voice, I hope it does a good Israeli <laughs> accent, comes out when I vent to my Goyish boyfriend about Jewish matters, where in the safety of our home, I can say exactly what I'm thinking without a filter. Gee, I wonder why that's my voice. <laughs> he thought he was dating a cute Lord of the Rings nerd, but surprise, now he could tell you all about animal-related Israel conspiracies and who really invented fish and chips. Lucky him. My Josh voice comes out when I talk to my Gentile friends and I strive to convey the entirety of the Jewish experience, explain that history didn't, in fact, start in the year 1900, define terms like ethno-religion, and all the while uphold my progressive ideals and speak in a way that is applicable to your average left-wing millennial. Josh, please do something nice for yourself this week that has nothing to do with social media. Uh-huh. No. <laughs> but in all seriousness, a big thank you to all Gentile friends who've reached out to me since October 7. My Stephanie voice, perhaps, no surprise there, is my favorite. Yay. Because she generally appears when I'm stoned. Oh! <laughs> and have illuminating revelations about cultural trends and anti-Semitism. <laughs> Uh, for the record, that's exactly how she appears to the two of us as well. We would be stoned and she'd be like, yo, man, I want to talk about cultural trends and anti-Semitism. My Stephanie voice distills all the noise into concrete ideas and ultimately brings out the beauty of being Jewish along oh with the pain. God. Am I currently stoned writing this email? Is calling for the genocide of Jews bad? The answer to both of these questions is obviously context dependent. <laughs> Finally, and most importantly, I'm happy to report that a grocery store chain has eliminated anti-Semitism. <laughs> Below is a photo of the new Manischewitz creation. Deep background source claimed that this gingerbread Hanukkah house is perhaps the most accurate visual representation of the rededication of the temple. Did I immediately purchase this item and genuinely enjoy <laughs> making and eating it? 1,000%. Thanks for taking the time to read my ramblings and wishing you a very happy Hanukkah to all. This is an email from a few weeks ago, as you could tell. <laughs> best, Sarah. Sarah, uh, honestly, best, best email ever. Please continue smoking weed and writing to us. Daymaker, what a nice thing to write. VIP, VIP status. I mean, look, we cannot do that. Sarah, thank you for writing. The rest of you could write under your regular state or your altered state. Um, we welcome all missives. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Hey, it's producer Ellie Blyer. Now, something that's maybe a tired cliche is that every Israeli claims to know the best hummus joint in the country. Often it's in these hummus restaurants that Arabs and Jews mingle because everyone's calm on a full stomach. But hear me out, I actually know the best hummus joint. It's called Al-Kahla in Yafo, and it's got a dish called Fateh that is an Israeli insider secret. Fateh is a mix of hummus and pine nuts and yogurt and, when they're in season, pomegranate seeds and all sorts of other yummy goodies. I took our own Tanya Singer to see what all the buzz was about. And if I had it my way, I swear Fateh might just bring peace to the Middle East. Have a listen. Where are we? We're in Yafo. And we're going to eat this food that Ellie has been talking about since before we landed. I think it's called Fateh. Shalom, shalom. Ellie, what's up? How do you feel? 
That's Zizo. He's the owner of Al Kaha. Zizo took me back into the kitchen to show me how he makes fate. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you what we're putting in because it is a secret. He said you can't transmit the smell, and it's a basa. As Zizo put the final touches on our meal, I went to talk to some of Al Kahla's patrons. And as often happens in Tel Aviv, I ran into an interesting character. Uh, I'm assuming just, I don't know, by the way you look, maybe you're a regular here. Um, actually, this is only my second time. I was printing my exhibition here at the uh, Rea Print House, and we ate there while I was printing for my upcoming exhibition. And uh, I know who you are. You're Daniel Chelek, right? How did you know? Okay, I pronounced it wrong. It's Daniel Chechik, staff photographer for the newspaper Haaretz. And that printing he was talking about? It's for an exhibit called Days of Darkness that was originally supposed to premiere in Kibbutz Be'eri, one of the worst-hit kibbutzim down south. So that's surprising. So how was hummus? It was wonderful. It was, I came over, usually I go to Abu Hassan, five minutes down the road, but yeah, it's really good. And it's a nice atmosphere. Strange, the whole situation and the conflict and everything going on and sitting and having hummus, you know, here, but nothing makes sense anymore, so it's fine. We're in the middle of a war, <laughs> of course. This is obviously an Arab place. Not that I have a problem with that, but everything is just, you know, on a personal level is fine, but on a country level, geographical level is pretty much hell. So it's that contradiction is pretty strange to me. This is definitely the way to feast, uh, you know, through music and through food, right? Now I'm going to judge you a little bit, Daniel, because I'm looking at your plate of hummus and it's not fateh. Meaning? <laughs> That is their manat degel. That is their star dish. Well, it's my second time eating here, so give me a break. Come back in two weeks, ask me again, and I'll be eating the manat degel. I swear we are going to get to the fate. But before we dug in, Zizo told me the story of how fate came to be. His family, the Al-Kakhlas, were locals from Yafo. Back nearly 100 years ago, they made fate and hummus and fava bean dishes. Food for the people, he told me. Travelers from all over the Middle East would come to Yafo just to have a taste. But in 1948, like many other Arab Yafo families, they were displaced from their homes. They went across the Middle East to Jordan and Kuwait and opened successful al-Kakhla joints there, which are popular to this day. Then, a few years ago, Zizo took all the family recipes, and nearly a hundred years since the original al-Kakhla in Yafo, he opened his own. Zizo's family in Jordan and Kuwait might disagree, but Zizo says his al-Kakhla is the tastiest one. And, of course, we talked about October 7th. Zizo told me that locals in Yafo were raised together, that the differences between Muslims and Jews were less important here than in other places, that they always saw peace as number one. But even to him, October 7th was different. Zizo had Jewish friends that were murdered and has family in Gaza, too. He has friends that are soldiers and neighbors whose relatives have died from Israeli bombardments. He said that he and other Israeli Arabs actually have it hardest. Their hearts break from both sides. So we, the Israelis, the Arabs, are more than the two sides. 
With all that, business has been hard. He's been working around the clock in a not-so-inviting atmosphere. But still, with all this pain, locals see Al-Kakhla open and say to Zizo, just don't close, keep making us happy. That's why he's still working today. Because for Zizo, if his food and hospitality make people happy, that's a step in the right direction. First of all, this looks amazing and different from anything we've seen so far. All right, so we're going to dig in. Is this hummus? Fate. Fate. Whenever fate is, it's going in. Oh my god. Okay, it's just creaminess. This is going to ruin me because there's nothing like this at home. It's like the Mediterranean kitchen sink ice cream sundae that's not ice cream. Oh my god. Mm. So what's amazing as you eat this fate, you get like the sweet of the pomegranate, you get the crunch of the fried pita chips, you get the smoky, toasty nuttiness of pine nuts. If you could make a hummus ice cream sundae, that's the only thing I can think of. It's just this like each bite has like flavor gems in it, texture, flavor, and we actually finished this entire <laughs> bowl. Um, I'm so glad that you brought me here. It was worthy of all the hype. Maze genius. You're a genius. Seto. Zenachon. So good. I wish I could get this in New York. And when you open New York, let us know. We'll be the first people there. If now you too want to try Fateh, you can find a link to Al-Kakhla in the show notes. Let's do some mazel tubs. Who's Who's got yeah, one? I've got mazels. I've got multiple mazels around the same event. I, I My weekend in New York this past weekend was a deeply Jewish one. In addition to the Elie Wiesel reading at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, I went to Shabbat on Broadway the day before. The brainchild of Amanda Lippitz, so mazel tov to Amanda Lippitz, who put together a really beautiful event at the St. James Theater, the first ever Shabbat on Broadway. There was a little Torah reading. There was... Hine Matov, sung by an incredible group of New York cantors to the tune of Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. Apparently, Oklahoma first premiered at the St. James Theater. Additional mazel tovs to Leopoldstadt kids, Max, Romy, and Joshua, who were among a group of kids who sang Adon Olam to the tune of You'll Be Back from Hamilton. <laughs> and who finally figured out, you know, what happened in Auschwitz. <laughs> <laughs> what happens at the end of the oh, play? Yeah, you know, oh, that's right. <laughs> Casey Levy from Leopoldstadt had an Aaliyah. My friend Nathan Salstone from the Nathan Englander play I did sang uh, with Samantha Massel the finale of Bernstein's Candide, Make Our Garden Grow. It was like a beautiful, amazing event with real kavanah and uh, a lot of vocal talent. Mazel tovs to all. That sounds amazing. It's like it's like Jewish Broadway nerds in the best way. Yeah, amazing. Coming together with like the mashups. I love that so much. I just have a mazel to our our recent guest, Moshe Kasher, who has been getting amazing reviews for his book, Subculture Vulture. If you missed that interview with him, I'd highly suggest it. Uh, Ben Cohen, my husband, said he does not listen to this show because he has to hear me talk all the time. Um, And he listened to that interview and loved it. Uh, I'll do two. The first one, a big, hearty mazel tov to our dear friends, Moti and Sterni Seligson, who this week welcomed a baby boy into this world, Mazel Tov, and we cannot wait to meet him. And Mazel Tov to Idan Amedi, who, if you love Israeli music, you know, is a big Israeli 
pop star. And if you love Israeli TV, you know he's, what's the name of his character on Fauda? Sagi. Sagi on Fauda. Um, he was wounded so badly a few weeks ago in Gaza that when he arrived in the hospital, he was literally unrecognizable. And this week, Bashar Tava, he was released from the hospital and gave such an amazing, touching speech that had elections been held in real time, he would have received something like 96% of the Israeli vote. So wishing him and everyone else continuing refresh Lama. Oh, we love you, Sagi. Amen. All right, Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Jerome Risquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Arton. We'd love to hear from you. Send us emails at unorthodoxtablemag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Yes, that is a landline. Until next week, shalom, friends. Do we have a good Holocaust pun to put right in there? <laughs>